We're going to um, read the Bible now, so if you want to grab your pew Bibles from in front of you. The first reading comes from Isaiah, and it's Isaiah chapter 5, and it's on page 508 of your pew Bibles. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool the thirsty ground, bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor will any ferocious beast get up on it. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. The next reading comes from Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 18. While he was saying this, a ruler came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, If I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that moment. When Jesus entered the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd, he said, Go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand. And she got up. News of this spread through all that region. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him, and he asked them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, 
According to your faith will it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Thanks, Sophie. Thanks, Warren. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, we want to give you praise and glory for your kindness and your compassion to us. Thank you for joining us to this building tonight. We do pray that you would clear our minds of any distractions. Father, would you put in us a, a hunger and a thirst to know you better? Uh, Lord, I ask that uh, by your Spirit you would show us again that the, the majesty and the glory of our Saviour. And if any are here tonight who are struggling, Lord, I, I pray that they would leave here strong in their faith. I ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen. I want to start by asking whether you ever stop and think about why people do not believe. So again, do you ever stop and think about why people do not believe? Uh, So I think of my brother, who's not a believer, my sister, who's not a believer. I think about all the guys I train with at Triathlon Club, they're not believers. I have explained the gospel to them so many times as clearly as I can, as humbly as I can, as prayerfully as I can, but they still do not believe in Jesus. And sometimes as a preacher, you, you bust a gut trying to sort of make the, uh, the simple truth about Jesus, who came to earth, who died on a cross to offer forgiveness and raised from the dead, as simple as possible, as compelling as possible, as convincing as possible, but people just say, oh, no, it's not for me. Maybe this week you're going to be bold enough to take that postcard for Carol's and, and talk to a friend and say, I'd love you to come to Carol's under the bridge to celebrate the birth of Jesus. And maybe they'll turn around to you and say, oh, thanks, but no thanks, it's not really for me. Why don't people believe? What will it take to bring some of your friends or your family to that point where they have faith in Jesus? Do you ever ask those questions? Let me put it in the positive. What did it take God to do in your life to bring you to the point where you believed in Jesus? What was it that brought you to faith? Those are the kind of questions we're going to grapple with in, in Matthew chapter 9. It's all about faith. What is faith? Why do you have faith? Again, I want to teach us tonight how to read the Gospels because they're not the letters, they're not the law. These are real stories of real people who encountered the living Lord Jesus. Uh, so last week I, I did a sort of a dramatized reading, first person narrative. Uh, this week I wanted to just do a, do a commented reading, just, just walk you through the text and get you to ask the questions and to make observations. 
So we're going to do a, a night with the Saviour, which is much better than Carl and Jackie O's night with the stars last Monday night. Uh, Jesus is at a dinner party. He is eating with sinners and tax collectors. He's just taught them that he has the authority to forgive sins. And look at verse 18. While he was saying this, someone comes and interrupts that dinner party. He's a ruler. And we know from Mark's gospel his name is Jairus, and he's a synagogue ruler. And he comes in verse 18, and he kneels before Jesus. Why does he kneel? It's a sign of respect, a sign of courtesy. A sign of desperation, perhaps. Because this man is desperate, verse 18. My daughter has just died. And you don't get more desperate than that, do you? The the death of a precious child. In that that, that single verse, verse 18, you've got both the desperation and the confidence of this man. My daughter has just died, but Jesus, come. And Jesus, if you put your hand on her, she will live. That's faith, isn't it? That's extraordinary faith that, that he believes that Jesus has the power to bring his dead daughter back to life. And Jesus got up and he went with him and so did his disciples. So you've got eyewitnesses. But as he's going to the house, he's interrupted by this, this woman. I, I love the woman in verse 20 and 21. I think she's an example of all of us. Look, at just an, a, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind Jesus and touched the edge of his cloak. And she said to herself, if only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. This woman has had menstrual bleeding, hemorrhaging from her womb for 12 years. Not, not once a month, but every day. 12 years and if you don't get that what it means is that she's an outcast she's a nobody because according to the Old Testament law uh, this woman is unclean she's unclean every day everyone she touches is unclean she can't go near God's people she can't go near God's temple she shouldn't be there in the crowd at all because she would make other people unclean uh, this woman has spent 12 years I- in isolation 12 years in desperation, 12 years of lonely living. And she reminds me of those women that we support in Ethiopia. They've been outcast because of, of leaking of, of urine and, and feces due to fistula. And nobody would talk to them. They just sort of stick food in front of them because they're nobodies. And that's the kind of woman you meet in verse 20. But she has faith. She said to herself, if only I touch his cloak, because he won't bother to to look at me. I'm a nobody. But if I could just touch his cloak, I will be healed. That's the confidence, the faith. And Jesus turns, and amongst the crowd, he saw her. Can you imagine that? You're one face in a crowd, and Jesus sees you personally. And he says these words in verse 22. He says, Take heart, daughter. And the same words he said to the paralytic, take heart, son. This time's take heart, my daughter. It's that intimate, relational word. Your faith has healed you. Uh, not your touch. Not, not your, some mystical thought that just being near me. It's actually your faith that's healed you, your belief that's healed you. 
Your trust has healed you. And there it is, verse 22. The woman was healed instantaneously, miraculously, permanently from that moment on. And imagine that woman, a nobody, an outcast, lonely, isolated, desperate, and suddenly her life is totally transformed because she's met Jesus. And so Jesus gets back to business in verse 23. He's got a a funeral to go to. When Jesus entered the ruler's house and he saw the the flute players and the noisy crowd. And this is where you get your theology of flute playing from in the Bible. See, in the Old Testament, if there's a funeral, according to two chronicles, you have to hire two flute players to play dirges and one professional wailer. Why would you do that? You do that because people grieved in a much more open, real way. You know, we go to the funerals here and we sit in the pews and we've got a little tissue and we just wipe away the tears. We don't want to be too emotional in public. But this woman, this girl is dead and people are distraught and they are weeping and they're wailing and they are grieving and the flautists and the wailer are basically saying, at this house, somebody is dead. This family are grieving. And so how insensitive of Jesus in verse 24. He says, go away. The girl isn't dead. She's asleep. It's not a funeral. It's actually just a, a, a siesta. She's just taking a nap. And they laughed at him. And I think I would laugh at him as well. But after the crowd had been put out, verse 25, Jesus went in and he took the girl by the hand, just as the ruler had asked back in verse 18, put your hand on her. Now, Jesus didn't need to do that. Jesus could have just said, get up, be raised, be healed. But he's trying to show us that the man actually had faith. He took the girl by the hand and, and she got up. And the dead is raised to life. And as I read that, I'm, my, my mind is going, my, my heart is going, Oh, death, where is your sting? Wow, this man can bring life to dead people. And I hope you're getting it. Life to the dead. Hope to the hopeless. That's what Jesus is about. Oh, verse 26, news of this spread through all that region. Verse 27, as Jesus went out from there, He still hasn't gone back to have his dessert at the dinner party because two other blind men spot him and they start to follow him. And these are men with a problem as well. They can't see. But they can see, can't they? Do you spot that in verse 27? They can't see physically, but they can actually see spiritually because they see who Jesus is. They call out to Jesus, have mercy on us, son of David. And they use the the messianic title for Jesus. They see that Jesus is the one that God has promised. They can see better than most people with sight. And so when Jesus had gone indoors, the blind men, they were persistent. They came to Jesus and Jesus asked them an important question that you and I need to hear. Do you believe that I'm able to do this? Uh, Literally, do you have faith that I have the power to do this? What's the this in verse 28? To give sight to blind people? Yes, it's that. But it's more than that. Do you believe that I'm able to have mercy on you because I'm the son of David? Yes, Lord, they replied. Now that's faith. 
And so Jesus touched their eyes. And he said these words, strange words, according to your faith, will it be done to you? And I'm thinking, does Jesus mean that if they have a tiny bit of faith, they'll have a little bit of sight? If they have a 50% of faith, they'll have one eye back. And if they have 100% of faith, they have both eyes back. That's not what he means. He says, in line with your faith, because you have trusted that I have the, the power to do this, it will be done. Because you believe. And their sight was restored. And Jesus warned them sternly in verse 30, see that no one knows about this. And I think that's because he doesn't want the crowds to follow and stop him doing the ministry that he was supposed to do. I love verse 31. They completely ignore it. They went out and spread the news about him all over that region. And I'm asking, is God going to punish them for that? We're not told, are we? But verse 32, he still hasn't got back to his dessert. Uh, while they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and couldn't talk was brought to Jesus. So this time, he doesn't come. Somebody else brings him to Jesus. And verse 33 is so matter-of-fact, isn't it? When the demon was driven out, as though that's easy to do. And the man who had been mute spoke as though that was easy to do. But it is easy for Jesus because he is God and he can do those things. But the crowd were amazed and they said nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. And that's not true. You know, Elisha healed people and Elijah healed people. They don't get it. And the Pharisees don't get it either, verse 34. They are quite offensive. They look at Jesus and they say this, it's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. They basically say, Jesus, you are demon-possessed yourself. They look at the son of David, the son of God, and rather than seeing his compassion and his power and his kindness, they just say, oh, you're demon-possessed. Now that's the way you read the Gospels, just ask the questions. Why did Jesus say that? And if you read the Gospels that way, the, the, the main points just drop out, because what is faith? Here's what faith is. Firstly, faith is about your utter desperation, recognizing your deep need for Jesus. What's the common factor in all these encounters? Jesus met people with real problems. And that's all of us here. We all have real problems. But the difference is that these people knew they had a problem. They knew they had a need. They were helpless. They were hopeless. They were downcast. They were outcast. They were ostracized. Look at it. Jairus' daughter, she's dead. You can't get more, more desperate than that. Jairus himself, he's lost his beloved daughter. He's desperate. I reckon the woman with bleeding is the best example for us. This living example of somebody whose life just sucks. She's ashamed every day, embarrassed every day, unworthy and hopeless and utterly desperate. And there's no pretense with her. If you met this woman, she wouldn't say, oh, yeah, life's okay. She'd say, my life sucks. The blind men are desperate. They want to be able to see. The demon-possessed man, he, he can't speak. I reckon he's the kind of guy that you and I walk past on Pitt Street, you know, just begging for money. <laughs> And we just try and avoid them, no eye contact. He, that man doesn't need to tell you that he's got a problem. He's very aware of that. I hope this is making sense. Uh, the first step in that pathway of faith is often 
to recognize that you've got a need, that you are in desperate need of something. We just sung it in our service. Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. <laughs> As I look at it, people here in this church, I could tell you their testimonies. There's somebody here tonight who would say, you know, it, it's when my child died. That actually God really humbled me and said, yeah, I, I need you, Jesus. There's somebody here who would say, it's when my husband left me. And I hit rock bottom. I thought, yeah, actually, I'm not in control of my life. I need God who is in control of my life. There is somebody here as well who's, who would say that when my money was all gone in the financial crisis, that's when God actually humbled me enough to say, I need you, Jesus. There's somebody who used to be at this congregation, and he would say after another night, getting blind drunk, sleeping with some faceless woman, he went home, empty, and those Sunday school stories came flooding back, and on his knees he just cried out to God, I need you. I see Jesus, Jesus is not just talking about your your psychological or your physiological problems. He's talking about your sin problem and your heart problem. You've got to reach that point of desperation. You can say, I actually need God in my life. I don't do the good I'm called to do. I, I do hurt others and I do fail to honor you, God. Have you reached that point of utter desperation, utter need? What will it take for God to bring you to that point? And what will it take for God to bring your family or your friends to that point where they have faith? Let me suggest it might be that they need to be utterly humbled, utterly hopeless and utterly desperate. Do you ever pray for your friends to be humbled in that way? It's a dangerous prayer to pray, isn't it? Dear God, please use the deepening crisis, financial crisis next year to strip away the, the false securities of money from that person so that they might see their need for Jesus. Dear, dear God, uh, please use that health scare with that person to show them that actually that they are not, they're, they're not going to live forever unless they put their faith in Jesus. Please use that loneliness to show that person that what they really need most it is the loving arms of the Father around them. See, we're basically very proud people who need to be humbled. And for some of us, we need to reach rock bottom. That was the woman, that was the ruler, that was the blind people. Utterly desperate. Nowhere else to go but Jesus. What is faith? Utter desperation. What is faith? <laughs> Absolute confidence. That's what screams out of this chapter. It's that confidence, that, that trust that Jesus has the ability and has the willingness to meet their needs. Do you spot that? The ruler came to Jesus because he was confident that Jesus could raise his girl back to life. Uh, the woman came to Jesus because she was confident that it was just, just a touch that Jesus could do that for her, could heal her. And the blind man called out to Jesus. The, the, the demon-possessed man came to Jesus, or was brought to Jesus, because he recognized that Jesus had the power to do something about it. That is faith. 
that confidence, that conviction, that, that surety that Jesus has the power to do it. See, it's no good you sitting here saying, I've got a problem. I'm in need. If you leave here thinking, out, thinking that you can fix that problem by yourself. God hasn't humbled you enough yet. It's no good saying, I've got a problem. I, I, I do trust that Jesus can heal it, but you don't bother going to him. Now, what is it about Jesus that we're confident about? Let me give you three things. Here's the first one. You're confident that, that in the greatness of Jesus, the, the power of Jesus, the authority of Jesus to do these miracles, to meet your needs. Let me say as clear as I can that Jesus has the power to do immeasurably more for you than you dare ask or imagine him to do. <laughs> it's like Jesus saying to us, verse 28, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Do you believe that I have the, the greatness and, and the power to, to do the, the greatest miracle in life, which is to bring dead sinners back to eternal life? Do you believe that I have the power to give hopeless people like the woman and you and me some hope? Do you believe that I have the power to actually say you're not dead but you're just sleeping? To use the language of Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 where the dead in Christ, they're not dead, they're just fallen asleep because they're with Jesus now and he's waiting for that day when they'll be totally transformed and living in eternity with God. You see, as you read this chapter, uh, the greatness of Jesus just, just screams at you. It's not, the, not just the physical realm, the spiritual realm, that Jesus has the, the power to give spiritual sight to the spiritually blind, the uh, spiritual life to the spiritually dead, and spiritual hope to the spiritually hopeless. But it's more than just power. It's to do with his, his goodness. This is what struck me this week. Listen really carefully. That it's not just that Jesus could meet their needs. It's that Jesus would meet their needs. It's not that Jesus had the ability to do it, but he had the, the heart to do it. That's what shines through to, for me. The goodness of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus. That he would leave a, a dinner party to stop and help a nameless woman. Uh, do you spot it in this chapter that none of these people have a name? My daughter the woman, the blind men, the demon-possessed. They're just nobodies. But Jesus knows them, and Jesus cares for them, and Jesus bothers to heal them. And isn't that you and I? It's not about our reputation or our status. We're just nameless people. But God has shown us extraordinary compassion. He sees us. He speaks to us. He heals us. He forgives us. Now that is the goodness of Jesus. You don't deserve that. Now maybe you're sitting here tonight and you're saying, well, yeah, I do believe that Jesus is good and Jesus is great. So why doesn't he heal me? That, that's a real question from this chapter, isn't it? Maybe you're here tonight and you're in chronic pain and utter desperation you have cried out to God again and again but God hasn't healed you physically I, is he not good is he not great of course Jesus can heal of course Jesus can heal he, got, he has the power to do that but, but will he heal you 
He might, or he might not. He doesn't promise to. Please don't base your faith on the fact that he's promised to, to heal your every disease. Why wouldn't God heal me? Well, lots of reasons. He might be keeping you humble. He might be growing your dependence. He might be growing your longing for heaven where there will be no sin and sickness. And the point is that the bridegroom is no longer with us. He's actually there in heaven. Unlike this time when Jesus was actually with them in the flesh. But whether he heals you or not, he's still good and he's still great. But this is the most important thing. Be confident that Jesus is good and he is great, but also be confident that Jesus is God. Because you don't base your faith on a great man or a good man. Your faith is based on the God man. <laughs> you see, these miracles, these healings have a much deeper meaning. Jesus is doing exactly what the Old Testament said the Messiah would do. Remember the reading from Isaiah 35? When the Messiah comes, what will happen? The blind will have sight. The lame will walk. The dead will be given new life. And the mute will speak. And if you believed that, when Jesus appeared and you looked at this man doing all these miracles, you would say, that's the Messiah. And the blind men see it in verse 27. Have mercy on us, son of David. You're the one. And that's the point you and I need to reach. That I've got a problem. I'm utterly desperate. And Jesus is great and Jesus is good. But more than that, he is my God. <laughs> that God will step into my world to save me. And that's faith. Now, do you know what I love about these chapters? Throughout chapter 8 and 9, all about faith. But the point is, it's not about the size of your faith. It doesn't matter how big your faith is. It's about who you put your faith in. And you've got the centurion in chapter 8 who has great faith. You've got the disciples in chapter 8 who have little faith or weak faith. You've got this woman who has almost superstitious faith, touching a cloth. But the common thread is that they've all got faith. Now for me, that's a real comfort because I go through seasons in my Christian life. And sometimes my faith is rock solid. Great faith. God, you can do whatever you want. And I trust you in, in 100%. And to be honest, there are times in my Christian life where my faith is, is just hanging on there by a thread. But that's okay. It's, it's who you have your faith in that matters. I'm still clinging on to Jesus, whether it's strong or weak. Let me try and illustrate that for you. Imagine that you have got a six-month-old baby son. And it's the night before the Passover. And you've watched God send the plagues of frogs and gnats and blood and darkness. And, and now you've heard that horrendous threat that tonight he's going to come and kill the firstborn sons. You look at your baby son. And you chat to your next door neighbor who's also got a baby son. And you, you say to him, I am terrified, aren't you? And he said, oh, I'm not scared at all. What do you mean you're not scared? God has promised to kill your child tonight. <laughs> I'm not scared because 
I've done what God told me to do. He, I've just taken the lamb and I put the blood around the doorpost and I, I have faith that actually God will pass over my son. And then your neighbor says, you, don't you have that faith? And I say, well, kind of. I mean, I have done what God told me to do. I have put the blood on the doorpost. But I'm still a bit scared. And then that night, there's wailing throughout the whole land as, as babies are killed. Now, the next morning, which of those two babies are still alive? And the answer is, both of them. Of course they are, because you both did what God told you to do. It's just that one of them had a much deeper, certain faith than the other one. But you both actually took God at his word. And that's the point of these chapters, that it doesn't matter how big or how small your faith is. It's who you put your faith in. And so I want to ask you, have you looked at Jesus and said, you are great and all-powerful. You are good and so kind to me. And you're God who stepped into this world to save me from my sins. And whether you're going through a season of, of weak faith or great faith, you have faith. And because of that, you can leave here tonight absolutely confident and secure. Let me do something tonight which I don't normally do. You actually pray a prayer for people who might be here tonight. Who have never said, I need you, Lord, I need you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for dying for me. So let me pray. If that's you tonight, please make your pr this prayer your own. Lord, I come to you in deep need and utter desperation. Lord, I'm sorry for my sin, my failings. Thank you for Jesus who stepped into this world, who died on the cross, who was raised to life. Thank you that he has healed me forgiven me, cleansed me, raised me to new life. Father, in times of struggle and weakness, where my faith is weak, thank you that you hold on to me. Please help me to keep my eyes fixed on my good, great Savior, the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray.